Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. Today is the 8th Sunday after Pentecost, and we hear from me, Emily Hansen Kern, as I preached from the lectionary, which was Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 19a. As always, you can find more sermons or information about All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. hoping for that sermon on judgment and that furnace of fire. I am so sorry to disappoint you. Uh, but we're going to be in Genesis this morning. Agreed. Safe. This morning, uh, this story in Genesis is just too good to miss. But to do it, I think we need to review the story of Jacob, because uh, I don't always remember everything going into this story. So as a reminder, Jacob is the son of Isaac, uh, the one who narrowly escaped death by sacrifice. You remember the one? From his father, Abraham. Jacob is also brother and twin to Esau. You'll remember him. We read about this a little last week, so this might all be familiar to some of you. Uh, Esau was the one he battled with in his mother, Rebekah's womb. The Lord told Rebekah that in her womb would be two nations, and those two nations would be divided. As the brothers grew up, Esau became a very hairy man in the wilderness, who was a skillful hunter and a man of the field. Meanwhile, Jacob became a man who was described as a quiet man who grew up living in tents. We're told that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. You can see where this is going. At some point during their growing up years, Esau came back to the house after hunting and was famished. Jacob happened to be at home just cooking and decided to take that opportunity to bargain with Esau for his birthright. That is the right of the firstborn son in a family to inherit his father's possession and authority. So he convinced Esau to sell his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. We're told that Esau then despised this birthright as a result of this trade. So it's not surprising then when a chapter later, Isaac is on his deathbed looking for his oldest son to bless and confirm this birthright when Jacob and Rebekah take the opportunity to instead confirm Jacob's trade with Esau. Because the thing about Esau is that he's already sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He's married outside of the clan already. He's described as uncouth and unintelligent. In short, he does not act as the one who would inherit the honor of a birthright. Now, as you'll likely remember, Isaac is dying and has nearly lost his sight, and he calls out to Esau to go on a hunt and make for him his favorite meal. When Esau returns, he would receive this blessing. So Rebekah overhears this, and while Esau is out in the fields hunting for the meal that would win back his birthright, she instead quickly fills, I'm sorry, quickly kills some of the livestock they had at home, cooks Isaac's favorite meal, and calls Jacob in to dress up as Esau in Esau's clothing with the hope of tricking Isaac into thinking that Jacob was Esau. She puts the skin of the livestock that she had prepared on his arms and hands to mimic uh, the hairiness of Esau. 
When I was a child, I always heard the story and thought that maybe they're like elastic bands and then like, you know. Um, but she sends Jacob in ahead of the meal with Esau. And Isaac, though skeptical, falls for it and gives Jacob the blessing instead. As you can imagine, Esau comes back from the fields with his meal and is furious to learn that this blessing had already been given away. Esau's fate is now sealed. His brother is now his Lord, whom he will serve the rest of his life. So Esau vows to hunt and kill Jacob. This news was passed on to Rebekah by hearsay, who called Jacob to her and told him to flee and to head to her brother's house in Haran. There is loads more going on in this story that we could play with, but here is where we find Jacob, where we start with our passage this, passage this morning. Jacob is on the road to his uncle's house, fleeing for his life from, the brother, from his brother with a blessing received by trickery from his father for offspring and land and the favor of God. And in the uncertainty of all that, and out of exhaustion, and purely because night had fallen, with his head on a rock for a pillow, God speaks to Jacob. In his sleep, Jacob dreams of a ladder or a ramp made of stairs, touching down from earth to the heights of the sky, with angels of God ascending and descending. And then God shows up standing right next to Jacob and fulfills Isaac's wish. God does bless Jacob with the same blessing of the patriarchs. Jacob will not always now be a wanderer. And the very thing that he had wanted his whole life will be true. He awakens from this dream afraid, because remember in the Bible, angels are scary and exclaims in awe that surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Even in Jacob's pain, in the complications that are his life in this moment, the joy of getting what he wanted and what it took to get there, in his striving, in his mistrust, and his distrust, and even in the manipulation it took to get what he wanted, in the words of Esther DeWall, God is not elsewhere. And so at this point in the story, two ideas come to mind for me from two very different people. One from the organizational psychologist Scott Sonenshine, and the other from the Anglican spiritual writer and Benedictine scholar Esther DeWall. Respectively, they use the terms stretching and stability. I'll start with Scott. Some years ago, I came across his book, Stretch. Maybe some of you have read it. I did not. But I did hear an interview that he did with Brene Brown, uh, where he talks about the two terms essential to his book. He uses these terms chasing and stretching. About chasing, he says that it's thinking that the more we have is our token to success in life. It's the belief that the more we have, the more we can do. This kind of thinking, naturally, leads us to compare ourselves with whatever our neighbors or friends on social media are purporting to do, and forever on a pursuit of the next thing. He tells this great story about grass, to lend credence to the idea that the grass is never greener on the other side. He says, 
that it is in the physics of how grass grows, which don't, don't stop me afterwards and ask me more about that, please. <laughs> that looking at it from the angle of over your neighbor's fence, it will necessarily appear much more greener and lush than it will if you are standing over it yourself. Stretching, conversely, is about being resourceful. It's about doing more with what you already have. It's focusing not on what other people have, not what you think you should need, but what you have in front of you right now, and how you can be more creative and more productive with what you already have. And this is also what Esther DeWall picks up on as well. In her book, Seeking God, the Way of St. Benedict, she describes Benedictine stability as a matter of commitment to place and to persons, accepting these people and this place as none other than the way to God. Dewall describes stability as something achieved through perseverance, holding on under great strain without trying to escape. It's not looking to the next place or a different group of people as the way to God, but a deep understanding that God is not elsewhere. She quotes Anthony Bloom, a metropolitan monk whose life had been about constant movement, when he said, the fact of being limited by a line drawn on the ground does not in itself make one stable. That is to say that having a home or a place to plant one's body does not make one stable. Instead, at the heart of stability, there is a certitude that God is everywhere, that we have no need to seek God elsewhere, that place hardly matters. And so stability is about balance. But really what got me this week is that it's also about commitment. That when things feel out of balance or dead or stale, that one possible course of action is to accept the limitations in front of me, those of my body or my geographic place, to accept these people and this place and dig my heels in deeper rather than to grab my tent and go. In stability, the action is commitment. And I think, or I imagine, that this is what Jacob experiences when he wakes up from this dream and understands that surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is Jacob accepting where he is and the limitations of his place, but with a deep inner certitude that God is there. Jacob, of course, decided to mark that moment with stones. After all, this was the place that helped him understand God's presence. And he named it Bethel, the house of God. But the blessing of God carried on with him, though he moved from that very spot the next morning. Never again would Jacob think that the grass was greener on the other side. Never would he need to behave in a chasey sort of way. That maybe if he just had this, or, or if he just had that, he would have God's blessing. Instead, he was given an assurance. Assurance on a biblical proportion of the certitude that God was there and will be there all along. And that though he will still wander, the very next morning in fact, and his brother will still try to hunt him down, the interiority of God's promise of presence will never go away. Are you in a place of something stale? Is something in you or in your life rigid and without life? 
Or better yet, what in your life right now is stale? What are you looking to escape? What Bethel experience might you be trying to get back to? In what ways are you hoping that if you just had this one thing, then things would be okay? In what ways might you be looking to abandon what is in favor of what could be? In what ways are you chasing? But before you run and abandon what is, how could you choose instead to commit to where you are, to the people, to the places? How could you accept the necessities and the limitations before you? How can you persevere to find the stability of heart, that certitude interiorly, and interior space that you can carry around with you to know without a doubt that God is not elsewhere? People and places are not absent from stability and the presence of God, but they are not bound by it. It is in space, in order, in people, in things that we come to know the stability of the presence of God, in fact. We've all got our Bethels, those moments when we had clarity, when we experienced ourselves in the presence of God, when we felt really alive. But that doesn't mean that we hold tightly to them or abandon wherever we are to get back to them. When we find ourselves outside of our Bethels, instead we need to return to a posture of listening for God, for where there is life. Because the promise of God exists, even in all of our brokenness, in the ways that we are complicated humans, that is, in our attempts to get what we want or to pursue that to which we feel called. But in the words of Esther DeWall, God is not elsewhere. <laughs>